Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Michael Prescott with us, New York Times bestselling author of more than 20 suspense novels. And for the past couple decades, he's also maintained a blog dealing primarily with the paranormal and postmortem survival. In his new nonfiction release, which is tonight, The Far Horizon, he summarizes what he's learned while offering ideas on how to better understand the sometimes baffling and paradoxical evidence for life after death. Michael, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us. Thank you very much, George. Thanks for having me. Friends, family, everybody okay because of COVID? Uh, Yes, I've had some friends who had COVID, and they really didn't have very serious symptoms from it at all. They were quite surprised how mild it was. Maybe they were just lucky. That's, That's great. And congratulations on your writing career. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been doing it since the 1980s. I started off with horror novels and then moved into psychological suspense. And I've been both uh, traditionally published through Penguin and also self-published. I actually made more money for a while (laughs) self-publishing. It is. Because the big uh, mainstream publishers hadn't figured out how to compete in that uh, field yet. So the the indies, like me, had it all to ourselves for a few precious years. (laughs) Uh, but those days are now gone, I'm afraid. So this book is not self-published. This is put out by White Crow Books, which is a, a publisher of paranormal titles. Great. Now, what is a suspense novelist doing writing about the afterlife? How did that happen? Well, uh, I became very interested in this subject over a period of time. I, I was originally uh, a total skeptic. I, I have to say, I mean, everyone always says that, but in my case, it's true. I, I was uh, the only thing I had read about the afterlife uh, or about paranormal was people like Martin Gardner and James Randi, who are skeptics. Yep. And that was my uh, my default position. Then when I was in my 30s, which I admit was a long time ago now, uh, I had like an early midlife crisis where my materialistic, rationalistic worldview just didn't make it for me anymore. I just didn't feel that was all there is. And I was, I was frustrated by it. I'd had enough success in my career that I wasn't focused on that as much. And then I felt, well, what else is there? Is there anything more than just making money and, and drop debt? And mm-hmm. so I started to look into this, and I was really struck by the fact that there's a lot of evidence for life after death. Um, and it comes, there's a variety of lines of inquiry that people have embarked on. Of course, there's near-death experiences, mediumship, uh, deathbed visions, past life memories, apparitions. Uh, there's a lot of different things. And what's interesting is that all these different lines of inquiry, which are explored by different people, like near-death experiences are usually explored more by medical doctors, and and apparitions will be explored by parapsychologists, but they all tend to converge on the same broad set of conclusions. So it's very unlikely to me that they're all wrong, you know? We're not just basing it on one line Mm -hmm. might be wrong. It's a whole bunch of things. I tell a lot of people who ask me constantly about life after death, and they say, first of all, George, do you believe in it? And I said, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I do believe that there is some kind of life after death, that the soul or whatever you want to call this entity exists in another dimension, another plane. Uh, but i got to tell you, if, if there is life after death, when you die, you will know it immediately. And if, and if there isn't any life after death, it doesn't matter. 
Well, no, you'll never know you were wrong. That's that's one of the values of my position. It's sort of like Pascal's wager. You'll never know you were wrong. <laughs> because if you if you die and cease to exist, then you're not going to be there to say, oh, shucks, I didn't make it. It's not here. That's right. <laughs> I'm not here. <laughs> exactly. So in a sense, you can't lose. <laughs> Tell us how you put the book, The Far Horizon, together. What was your basic premise and outline? Well, I'll tell you, I... I've been blogging on this, as uh, I think you mentioned, for about 20 years, and originally I thought I would just go through the blog and pick out my favorite blog posts and kind of put them together. But when I started going through it, I realized that by my estimate, I had more than 400,000 words of blogging, which is one of war and peace. I didn't realize I was quite that... uh, Or the Bible. Yes, it's too long. I could not even imagine reading all that stuff over again, let alone trying to edit it. So I decided, all right, I'm going to have to come up with a different approach. So I decided the thing that always, that I found interesting lately is trying to put it all together and make sense of it and and tie it up into a kind of a story, because I, I do tell stories, you know, try and tell a story about what it all means. And so I, I approach it from that perspective, and, and then I just picked and chose from among the things I had blogged about to illustrate my different points. That's great. Now, what would you like people to learn after reading the book? Uh, I would like them... To, well, first of all, the book is aimed at people who are at least open to the idea of life after death. They don't necessarily have to believe in it, but if they're dead set against it, it you know, it's not really aimed for them. It's aimed at people, because I'm not trying desperately to prove it. I'm not trying to, like, talk you into it if you don't right. want to believe or, it. Or, or, or disprove it. Right. I mean, I'm just trying to, to lay out what I think about it and what I think is some good evidence. And... Um, I would like people to feel maybe at the end that it makes more sense to them, that it's not just a collection of ghost stories and campfire stories and anecdotes and this, that, and the other. It doesn't quite fit together, but that it sort of holds together. Uh, It holds together as a unified narrative. All those different lines of inquiry that I mentioned actually fit together into a jigsaw puzzle that, that you can look at and say, oh, yeah, I see the big picture now. That's what I was trying to do. The Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, created a long time ago to yeah. kind of help people get through the dying process. Right. And it, so even our ancestors of several thousand years ago were fascinated with life and death stories, weren't they? Yeah, this goes back uh, as far as, as, as we know. I mean, it probably goes back to prehistory, if we can judge by some of the burial rites of prehistoric man. Uh, and, uh, you know, the ritualistic uh, um, undertakings. I mean, some of the first architectural achievements were, um, were temples and ziggurats. They were, they were temples to gods. There was a very afterlife-centered environment. The earliest literature, like uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh or the mm-hmm. Iliad, very much involves issues of life after death, uh, the soul going down to Hades in the Iliad and in the Odyssey. In the Odyssey... Odysseus goes and he meets with the souls of the dead in Hades. Uh, and in the Aeneid, there's a similar scene. So, yes, I mean, this has been with us forever. Uh, it's, it's always been a question. You were the skeptic, and now at what point do you, would you say you are at? I would say, I usually tell people that I'm about 90% convinced of life after death, and maybe 95% on a good day, <laughs> and maybe only 80 <laughs> 
and on a bad day, you know, we have our ups and downs, and some days I'm like, oh, you know, but most of the time, yeah, I'd say I'm about 90%, and it's not so much that I desperately want to believe in it, because frankly, in some ways, like you said before, if it's non-existence, that's not really that bad. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it means you'd never have to have another worry. <laughs> another At all. If you exist, you just, you're gone. Uh, whereas afterlife means you are going to have other challenges, and 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 you know it could be there could be a downside to it. Um, but I just think the evidence is is good, and and I'm I'm not going to close my eyes to all the reading I've done and mm-hmm. the people I've talked to. I, I've talked to people who've had near death experiences. I've talked to hospice workers. Many hospice workers can tell you things. That's a field where you know they they're in constant contact with the dying. And it's, it's, uh, there's a lot out there. That 10% of doubt that you put in there, is that uh, for margin of error? Yeah, I feel like I can only be 100% sure if I'm actually dead. And right. I'm not quite committed enough to the research. Or you see a ghost or something like that. Maybe a ghost or a near-death experience, yes. I mean, I've known people who saw ghosts, and I've, I've met some ghost hunters and talked to them about the things they've seen. But... Uh, yeah, it's hard to be 100% convinced, for me, anyway. I, I'm always going to have a little bit of doubt about anything. You know, I mean, that's just the way I am. Michael Prescott with us. His book is called The Far Horizon. His website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. It's his name. Michael, was there an episode in your life that kind of steered you toward believing what you're believing now? Uh, ultimately, yeah. In a way, there was. When I was uh, about 17... I had a, I guess you'd call it kind of an epiphany. You'd call it maybe an instance of cosmic consciousness. I don't want to make too much of it. I'm not saying it turned me into a savant or anything, but I was having, I was sort of meditating on something, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, I had this intensely strong feeling that the world was not the whole show, and mm-hmm. that human beings are just souls clothed in human form and that none of it should be taken too seriously. And this was, I mean, it, it doesn't come across when I say it like that, it doesn't sound like anything, but it was actually a very intense experience that lasted for two or three days and really changed my attitude uh, at that time. And then I have to say, though, that after that it faded, as these things tend to do. And... Um, uh, to be honest, for a lot of years, I, I just forgot it. I just pushed it out of my mind and didn't think about it until I had my, my midlife crisis, as I call it, and started to get interested in this stuff again. So there was a certain amount of denial, too, where I just didn't want to deal with it. Are you spiritual? Yeah, I would say so. I believe in God. I don't necessarily believe in the Judeo-Christian God uh, in the sense of like a, an anthropomorphic God, you know, a human-like God. I think that God is more like a cosmic mind. I think that consciousness, awareness, is probably the ground of being. In other words, I think that's what everything comes from. We get it backwards when we think that the material world comes first, and then consciousness comes out of it. I think consciousness comes first, the material world comes out of it. And so I think God is that universal consciousness, and then each one of us is our own little splinter of divine consciousness, very, very small splinter, right? We're not God, but we have this very small splinter of divine consciousness uh, that that's what makes us, you know, spiritual beings. I look at the wonders of this universe, and maybe the multiverses, 
Right. And and I just keep coming up with the equations of there's no way this has happened randomly. There's just no way. It's, it's To me, it's impossible that the complexity of life, you and I talking to each other right now, and everything else was put together by a fluke and an accident. There's got to be some kind of design. And taking God out of the equation for a moment, I don't know what that design is, but I know there's something there. I agree with that. I mean, I spent a lot of time, uh, though I don't really deal with it in the book, I have to say, but I have spent a lot of time on the blog dealing with uh, intelligent design, not in the simplistic way, but I mean the idea of the cosmos itself as showing signs of intelligent design, that the, the Big Bang had to be very precisely calibrated in order to produce a habitable universe, not just habitable by human beings, but habitable by any conceivable beings. If, there, if the initial parameters of this universe had been even slightly different, it would have either collapsed back in on itself right away, or it would have just expanded endlessly without ever coalescing into anything. And there are many examples like that. It, it's also true that the basic um, laws of physics are extremely simple. You know, E equals mc squared is a very simple equation. There's no obvious reason why it has to be that simple, and yet it is. So uh, there was a physicist who once said that the more he looked at the universe, the less it looked like a great machine and the more it looked like a great thought. And I agree with that. I think it is ultimately a great thought. Next hour, when we take calls with you, Michael, I want to do something a little differently, and that is not only do they have questions for you, but I want every caller to tell us if they believe in life after death or if they don't and why or why not. And it's going to be interesting to see what kind of reactions we get from people. I look forward to that. You you start your book, The Far Horizon, with uh, something called R101. What is that? Well, I started with that because... Having been a suspense novelist, I know that you're supposed to start with a bang. <laughs> and this bang I could think of for a paranormal story because it involved the crash and explosion of an 800-foot-long dirigible. The R-101 was, in fact, a British airship, a dirigible, which was built in 1930, and it uh, took its maiden voyage that year, crossed the English Channel into France, hit high winds and heavy rain, and came down and was destroyed, and all the crew members on it perished. Uh, the crash was, was heavily publicized, but the details of it were not because it was a top-secret military project. Nevertheless, just a few days later, a British medium named Eileen Garrett began to receive messages apparently from one of the crew members, someone named Lieutenant Irwin, and he talked in detail about why it had gone down, how it had gone down, what they had done wrong, where they'd made their mistakes in the computations, the lift, and so forth. And a a stenographic uh, transcript of that seance was actually shown to the people who had worked on the R101 project, and they agreed that it was generally accurate and that the technical details were right and that some of it was things that she shouldn't have known. She went on to do more seances, and joining her was a guy named Oliver Villiers, who was a major in the Army who had known Lieutenant Irwin. And he and Irwin, speaking through Eileen Garrett, had long conversations about uh, the R101 and how it could be improved and how the design should be changed and so on. It couldn't have come from Mrs. Garrett's subconscious. She knew, knew nothing about aeronautics. She didn't even know how to drive a car. She was not mechanical in any way. Um, 
the information was so accurate, Villiers put it, uh, advanced it to the British government to help them in their fact-finding, and the British government in turn investigated Eileen Garrett to see if she had a mole or a secret source mm-hmm. inside the project that was feeding her inside information. But, of course, there wasn't any. Um, and one of the, the kicker to the whole thing is that one of the communicators said that he had kept a diary uh, recounting all of his doubts and fears about the program because of the rushed schedule and the budget and everything. And his widow said, no, no, there's no such diary. But years later, in 1967, so this is 37 years later, she found the diary, and it did say all those things. Wow. that's some... So you're a believer in reincarnation? I am. I mean, I don't know that I personally want to be reincarnated. <laughs> but uh, I... You I, might have already, 20 times. Who knows, right? I... I, I I, I think that there is good evidence for reincarnation. Um, to me, it's not necessarily so much the hypnosis cases, because it is possible for people to use what's called cryptamnesia, where the subconscious mind will remember something that the conscious mind has long forgotten. Uh, maybe there was one case of a hypnotized person who remembered a life as one of the Cathars, which was a... Uh, a Christian sect that was persecuted right. in the Middle Ages. Well, it's like the Templars almost, isn't they it? They were like that, yeah. It was, it was a, actually, it was a sect that believed in reincarnation, and they were finally uh, mercilessly extinguished by the Catholic Church. But she remembered this in detail, and it was very convincing, except it turned out that all of it came from a radio drama that she must have heard years earlier and forgotten consciously, but under hypnosis it came back. So you have to be wary of hypnosis. People will confabulate. They'll make things up. But the better cases are young children who spontaneously remember past lives. They're not hypnotized, but they will just start to insist they live the past life. And there are about 3,000 cases like that that have been studied worldwide. Some of them are very, very compelling. So that would be my best evidence for reincarnation. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.